host of Skywatch Women, Skywatch TV science editor, my best friend, Sharon Gilbert. Hi, honey. And the author of a new book that will be the topic of discussion here for the next several programs in Skywatch TV. He's the uh, scholar in residence at Lagos Bible Software, the author of I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible and The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, host of the excellent Naked Bible podcast, Dr. Michael Heiser. Mike, welcome back to Skywatch TV. Thanks to both of you. The Book of Enoch. Um, Long-time viewers may be familiar with the title, uh, but I'm guessing most people who are regulars in the pews on Sunday mornings have no idea that it exists or how it influences the New mm -hmm. Testament. So let's start there. What is the Book of Enoch? Where does it come from? Sure. The Book of Enoch is, again, when scholars talk about it, they're re referring to something called First Enoch. There's actually three Books of Enoch. But the first one is the one that gets all the attention, and you know for good reason. It was, you know, something that circulated really widely in the intertestamental period. Again, what scholars call the Second Temple period, and so it would have been a book read by Jesus and read by the apostles, the New Testament writers, and you know any any Jew that sort of read stuff in the Second Temple period would know about Enoch and would know the contents, the storyline, and so on and so forth about this book. Now, for us, our evidence of this book only goes back to about the 3rd or 2nd century B.C. because this book, in particular the book of Enoch, First Enoch, was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls in fragmentary form, so little portions of it. Uh, the, the greater portion of it is much later in terms of manuscript evidence, but it's very clear that it was an intertestamental book. It gets quoted by other books. It gets talked about a lot all the way into the early Christian church. So it was something that we know was pretty widely read and respected. Uh, it wasn't considered canonical, except for a handful of early Christian fathers, you know, famous you know, Christian writers, did consider a first Enoch you know, worthy of inclusion in the Bible, but most did not. But regardless of that, it was something that you know, was widely read and respected and thought highly of. This is the Enoch from the Old Testament that we're all familiar with. It was translated. Did he write this book? Yeah, there's no evidence either in the book or from the manuscript evidence that he was actually the author. Uh, and, and that's a good thing to bring up because Enoch is grouped by modern scholars in a collection of literature from this period called the Pseudepigrapha. And I've read you know, some, some Christian sources where they'll take that term Pseudepigrapha and think, oh, false writings, you know, mm -hmm. don't read that. <laughs> Uh, that isn't actually what the term means, and it's not what scholars mean by using the term. Uh, pseudepigrapha are books that are written and get titled either by the author or by later readers uh, according to the main character in the book. In other words, it's like a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. And there are biblical books like this as well, First and Second Samuel. There's, there's nothing in First and Second Samuel that says Samuel wrote it, but that's what it becomes known as because he's the central character, you know, him and David. Uh, so it's sort of a known thing in between the Testaments. Lots of people wrote books, and either, again, they titled it or someone else titled it according to the, the main character uh, in in the book. And Enoch, of course, is the one you know translated and gets to see mm -hmm. God and doesn't die. And so that the biblical story plays a big part in the book we know as Enoch or First Enoch, and that's why it gets its name. Mm -hmm. This is one of those curious stories in the Old Testament that, we, we kind of look at and just kind of go, hmm, like the Genesis 6, <laughs> 1 through 4, you know, yeah. okay, giants, okay, we'll just kind of file that away as one of those curious little things that doesn't really matter to us mm -hmm. today. Um, you know, Enoch, of course, is one of two Old Testament, uh, you know, patriarchs mm -hmm. who were brought up to heaven without dying. Mm -hmm. So 
just from that alone, you'd assume there was something significant about it. How important was the Book of Enoch considered to the writers who lived during the time of the New Testament? Well, the authors of the New Testament. Yeah, it's actually quite important, and that's it's what's prompting the book. Um, in in the academic world, uh, scholars spend a lot of time on Enoch and its relationship to the New Testament. Uh, because you, you would think, and again, I've read this in Christian books, oh, we, sh we shouldn't even think about the book of Enoch because you know, the New Testament never quotes it, New Testament never bothers with it. That's just false. That's just wrong. Uh, it is quoted very clearly in one or two places, but there are dozens of allusions uh, to the material, to the storyline in particular in this book. And so it, it really leaks into some some New Testament passages in fascinating ways. The, the one that's kind of the most obvious is when Peter and Jude write about the angels that sinned. Mm -hmm. And again, there, there's no other candidate for that phrase other than the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 incident. You know, the, the whole idea of, you know, the third of the angels being swept down in a rebellion. And you get that in Revelation 12, mm -hmm. again, the last book of the mm -hmm. Bible. You get that in Revelation 12, but, but that event is cast in connection with the first coming of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah. So there's a war in heaven in connection with that. So th this, this idea that this is primeval is largely something that comes from like Paradise Lost, you know, Christian tradition. Mm. You don't actually have you know, biblical precedent for this. Mm -hmm. But Peter and Jude are, are, are writing about the angels that sin, and they use certain lines that come from Enoch, certain ideas, the, the angels that are kept in gloomy darkness, chained in gloomy darkness, you know, prisoned in the abyss. Well, you don't read that in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 or anywhere else in the Old Testament. You know, where, which, where you do read it is books like First Enoch in, in the intertestamental literature. Now, it's true that you get, again, the, the disembodied spirits of the giants, okay, the immaterial version of the Rephaim in Sheol, in the underworld. You get that in the Old Testament, but some of the specific language that Peter and Jude you know, offer, especially when, uh, in, in Peter's case, he uses a verb tartarao, to be kept in Tartarus. That's a very specific allusion to the Titan story, which is the, the, secular, yes. Greek, oh, yes. yeah. it's the secular Greek version of what Enoch is writing. So that's probably the, the most blatant example of, of where the, it's not quoted explicitly, but there are absolutely clear themes in Enoch that show up in New Testament so writings. Titanomachy would be the same as what in biblical terms? There's actually two. There's actually two versions of the of the Titanomachy in in ancient Greek literature, and one of them is very close again to the Genesis six one through four, the Watcher mm -hmm. story, the, the sin of the Watchers, and that's actually what I focus on in the book because the specific episode where you have the sin of the Watchers, which is Enoch's language for Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men, producing Nephilim. Uh, that episode covers, is, is really dealt with in 1 Enoch 6 through 15. So nine chapters, and they're all very short, so it's not a whole lot of material, but that episode is really important for New Testament writers because in Jewish theology of the day, if you asked a Jew, hey, why is the world the mess that it is? Why is human depravity so bad? They wouldn't answer you like a Christian would today. Mm -hmm. A Christian would say, oh, that's the fall. Well, a Second Temple Jew would say, well, yeah, the, the fall's an issue because there we have the first you know, entrance of sin into God's good world. But the real culprits here are the Watchers because in the Watcher story, and also it's true in the story that's behind Genesis 6 from Mesopotamia, 
that the writer of, of Enoch knew. Um, what, what the real problem is, is what the, when the watchers sin like this, they also teach humanity lots of things that corrupt humanity. And so if you asked a Jew, hey, why, why are people so bad? You know, what, what's, what's up with depravity? They would say, well, you know, it kind of got started with, with the garden, but the real impact is the sin of the watchers. And so you have that idea, kind of the proliferation of evil being you know, laid at the feet of the watchers. That idea is picked up in, a, in several passages in the New Testament that you'd never really know it's kind of you know lurking you know under the surface unless you kind of knew what you were looking for. Mm. You know, if you had read Enoch, you'd know that. Not just the Titan story, but also gets into Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. The the whole. I mean, there there are some some pretty you know interesting counterparts you know picked up on you know in in the, the quote you know mm. Greek mythology or yeah. you know the the Greek stuff that isn't related to the Bible you know, isn't mm-hmm. a translation of the Bible, that kind of thing. But yeah, you get you get clear touch points with that kind of material. And it all goes back to earlier days. I mean, there are whole studies, for listeners that are interested, the, the, the premier scholarly study is by M.L. West called The East Face of the Helicon. It's a really dense book. It's five or 600 pages, and it, it's out of print, so it can be pricey. But he traces, the, he traces Greek mythology back to the ancient Near Eastern roots. And once you do that, you can begin to see touch points with biblical stories as well. Mm. So it, it's, it's an Oxford title. It's great stuff. That sounds fascinating. Um, had a conversation with uh, our daughter yeah. over, uh, over the, the, the weekend, basically, uh, and, and discussing the kind of things that we do, um, and I think scaring her boyfriend. <laughs> but that's your job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but but she was obviously enthused, and actually they, they met, and she knew that he was uh, unique because he actually you know came to her and said, "Hey, I heard about these things on this podcast I was listening to about the Nephilim. Isn't that interesting?" And she's like, "Oh, <laughs> wonderful." Um, <laughs> but she had been fascinated from the time of being a a middle school student when they were learning about Greek mythology mm-hmm. and then she in her own mind without prompting from us connected this to the things that we were learning about this narrative the genesis, genesis 6 um, account and the the angels who sinned and she said oh i wonder if those giants are, are like greek mythology well mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. very good um so just then to, to clarify again and just to sort of summarize, the, the accounts in the books of Enoch essentially expound upon the, those four mysterious verses in Genesis chapter 6 and give us the backstory. Yeah, I would say it, it, it gives us the backstory because whoever wrote Enoch very clearly knew the, the real backstory of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and that is the Mesopotamian story of the Abkalu. Mm. Because there are things in Mesopotamian literature in those stories that show up also in Enoch. So, again, it's very clear that whoever wrote that knew not only the Old Testament, Genesis 6, mm-hmm. 1 through 4, but also knew the, the more ancient backstory that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was responding to. Again, sort of shooting theologically at some, you know, some, some specific points of Mesopotamian religion. So whoever wrote Enoch knew all that stuff. And puts it all together in their work, and then Peter and Jude and other New Testament writers, you know, dip into it either quotation-wise or allusion-wise. And so you actually get, it sounds really odd, but you actually get in a Jewish work from the time of Jesus, you get preserved the original context for why Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is even in the Bible. Wow. Hmm. Well, the book, forthcoming, 
by Dr. Michael Heiser, working title, Reversing Herman. When we come back, we'll ask this question. If this is providing the backstory for the sin of the angels that's recorded in the New Testament, why isn't the Book of Enoch in the Bible?
our guest, Dr. Michael Heiser. Please log on to skywatchtv.com because there you'll find exclusive content available only to people who log on to the website. Web-only content such as interviews that we couldn't fit into our network television schedule and special programming available to the Roku viewers and to our YouTube channel viewers such as Into the Multiverse with Josh Peck, Skywatch Women hosted by Sharon Gilbert, and uh, of course our weekly look at the world of science through a Christian lens, Sci Friday. All of that and more available only when you log on at skywatchtv.com. Uh, Mike, I guess the big question then is why if this is so helpful, the book of Enoch is so helpful to understanding what happened in Genesis 6. Why isn't it in the Bible? Good question. Yeah, the, the answer is the same as why all the other books that are helpful for understanding the Bible <laughs> aren't in the Bible. I mean, biblical writers used, I like to say it this way, you know, believe it or not, you know, hang on to your hats, you know, sit down. Biblical writers read things. <laughs> like, oh, they read material. I mean, Outside the Bible, they yeah. read things that weren't approved to I canon. Mean, Lots of Christians sort of take what I refer to, and I'll admit it's a little pejorative, okay, an X-Files view of inspiration, okay, that the biblical writers just kind of, you know, wakes up one day, starts making breakfast, and just like gets zapped. Mind goes blank, you know, the loss of the limbs. Automatic writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hand and exactly. arm just start waving, and then they, they snap out of it, and they look down and say, wow, did I write that? Man, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> you know, this is not, again, how biblical inspiration works. And... I think lots of Christians sort of know this or have been exposed to the fact that it doesn't work this way through something like archaeology, for example. You, know, you can you can go hear a speaker that say, hey, you know, the, the covenants of Israel, you know, they were kind of written in conformity with ancient Near Eastern covenant patterns, and that helps us date this material, and it helps us prove the authenticity of this or that narrative, and people are like, yeah, that's good stuff. But if it's true... It tells you that they were using sources, that they were literate, that they were intelligent, they knew what they were doing. They're not writing like somebody who you know, doesn't know how to write a covenant because they do know how to write a covenant because they've invested some time into how you do that so that people who read it know that, well, this is obviously a covenant because it conforms to all the things we expect when we read one. And it's the same thing with using external books. The Psalms, for instance, uses the Baal cycle in several places. Why? To shoot at Baal. Mm -hmm. Because people were familiar with stories about Baal. I mean, the prophets have problems with Baal all, all the time. And so the, a prophet or you know, some other writer will pull something out of that and dis Baal, you know, either substituting Yahweh mm -hmm. for the good guy in the story. It's not Baal, it's Yahweh. But they use that material. So should the Baal cycle be part of the Bible? Well, you know, when you start asking questions like that, it, it kind yeah. of brings out the, maybe we need to think better about this. You know, in my view is that, look, a book doesn't have to be inspired, doesn't have to be part of the canon to be useful. Biblical writers read lots of things that helped them, again, express what they were trying to write, were trying to say under inspiration, and they were just helpful and just help them communicate to their own audience. Before the break, you mentioned Abkalu. Is this a person or an event or a place? or? The Apkalu were before the flood. <laughs> they were divine beings. They were the equivalent of the watchers, sons of God, whatnot. And in Mesopotamian text, you get them listed. They're, they are the, the culture heroes of Mesopotamia, the, the great divine minds that helped humanity become civilized. Prometheus. Sort of like, yes, right. exactly. After the flood, you have... Four Apkalu listed in texts that are post-flood Apkalu, but they aren't described as divine. They are described as, quote, of human descent, and only two-thirds divine. Oh. oh. 
So they're they're you know to use our term they're hybrid. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're this mixture again that that results from a passage like Genesis six. Were they really tall? <laughs> they, well, two, not only are they two thirds divine, but they are by virtue of that description. Where have we heard that before? Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and Gilgamesh yes. is described as a giant. Yes. In the same literature. And, you know, again, you have, you have the whole matrix of ideas right there in that story. You've got divine beings right, right at the time of the flood. Something happens where they produce offspring that are of human descent, but still divine, divine, you know, the, the, this hybrid thing going on. And, again, Gilgamesh is one of them. Gilgamesh is actually called in a cylinder seal from Mesopotamia, Lord of the Apkalu. Hmm. So he is a giant. He's one of them. He's this hybrid, you know, kind of being. And you, you get the whole matrix of ideas right there in their story, in this Mesopotamian you know, literature, this material, that really gives you everything that you need, everything that, that is present in the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 episode. So the key question becomes, well, what was the writer of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 shooting at? I mean, what, why the relationship to this? What is the, the theological message here behind these four verses? Hmm. Well, you mentioned in a previous interview that uh, Gilgamesh was actually mentioned outside of mm -hmm. the... Uh, the ancient Mesopotamian texts, uh, the Babylonian texts, uh, the, the, outside of the, Gil, the, uh, the Gilgamesh uh, cycle. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, where, where do we find that he, reference? He, in he is found in, in an Enochian text. Okay? Now, for scholars, scholars, of course, have first Enoch and the other Enochs and whatnot. But they tend to label any text that deals with the sin of the watchers, like Enoch does, as having Enochian stuff in it. Hmm. And one of those is called the Book of the Giants. Okay, and that was also oh, yes. discovered uh -huh. among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Gilgamesh is, is named in the Book of the Giants. Again, same, same kind of thing. In, in fact, one, one passage, one fragment is uh, 4Q530, because the, the book is preserved in a number of Qumran fragments, has Gilgamesh as, he's a giant, of course, and he's called a giant, but he has a dream, and he's asked to tell the other giants the dream, you know, like, hey, what, you know, it doesn't say this, but kind of like they're, they're hoping... A, you know, what did God tell you? And we hope it's good news. Mm -hmm. Because, again, in this story, they're, they're not good guys. Mm -hmm. So in this particular text, Gilgamesh says, well, you know, in my dream, God, the great one, he's referred to as, the, the great one is going to punish the princes for us. In other words, on our behalf. And, and, and the rest of the text is like the giants are like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, we're off the hook. <laughs> so it, it, it just gives you this little insight into, again, the, this particular, you know, expansion of the story, but in this, in that particular text, it's like the giants get off from being punished, unlike the princes, mm -hmm. and and that's an interesting term because that is a biblical term for again the sons of God, the gods of the nations mm -hmm. in this case, uh, but still referred to as sons of God in the biblical material, who are put over the nations. You know, so it again you have this whole matrix of ideas working. Uh, that's present in Genesis 6, you know, the wider cosmic geography mm -hmm. stuff of the Old Testament, Gilgamesh, the giants, the Nephilim. And, and in the Qumran scrolls, the word Nephilim occurs you know, mm. in, in relationship to giants, too. Wow. What's interesting is that uh, in the, the book of Enoch, or first Enoch, the, uh, the giants don't actually get off the hook. No, they don't. We're, we're told... <laughs> Someone's more sympathetic for this text. <laughs> yeah. Well, explain you know, what, what happens to the giants in, in First Enoch, and how is that relevant to Christian theology? Yeah, in, in the, the giants in, uh, 
again, in the Sin of the Watchers episode, again, are very bad guys. They, you know, they're cannibalistic, you know, they're eating people, they're just destructive, they're just, you know, they're, they're like, you know, they're the Incredible Hulk, with, but not a good guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they become the object along with, you know, the Watchers, uh, the object of God's judgment. Now, the Watchers are, of course, consigned to the abyss, which, in, you know, not coincidentally, is where the Apkalu from Mesopotamia wind up. After they do what they do to preserve, we can talk about it maybe a little bit later, but what the Apkalu do to preserve their knowledge, preserve civilization in the wake of the flood, Marduk is not pleased okay, after that happens. And he says to the, to the Apkalu, the Apkalu must return to the abyss and never, you know, never re, you know, return back to earth, back to civilization. So they're put in the pit. You know, the underworld, the realm of the dead. And that's where all the Jewish traditions in Enoch and other you know, Enochian texts have the original offending watchers. And that's where Peter has them. The angels that sinned are put into the, in chains of gloomy darkness. Right. They're kept there until the last day and all that sort of stuff. But the giants are destroyed. And when you destroy a giant, according to Enoch and again other texts, the, the disembodied spirit of a giant is what we know as demons and what Judaism knows as demons. And you get glimpses of that in the Old Testament when you have certain passages. Ezekiel 32 is, a, is an example where you have the Rephaim, which again is another term associated with the giant clans back in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, but they mm -hmm. are present in the abyss, again, as spirit beings. Mm -hmm. So you, you get these ideas in the Bible. They're not all in one place. In the Enochian literature, you, you kind of have it all collected and dealt with in story form. And then it goes into the New Testament in books like Peter and Jude. But what I'm doing in my book is saying there's more to the, the, the sin of the watchers thing than just the giants. That episode and its theological ramifications show up in other New Testament passages that you're just not aware of. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that in the next episode of Skywatch TV. But uh, with just a few minutes left here, um, I know that uh, there are different books considered canonical and different um, strains within Christianity. Mm -hmm. Roman Catholic Bible is different from the Protestant Bible, and you know the Orthodox uh, Coptic Christians have different mm -hmm. um, uh, books that they consider canonical. Um, how is Enoch considered by other Christian groups around the world? Well, the the Ethiopian Church you know, still considers Enoch canonical and has done so, you know, from antiquity. Hmm. Um, Abyssinian you know, would be that another reference to that. Not the same as like you know African Methodist Episcopal Abyssinian, but uh, Ethiopic Church, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church again has a very high view of Enoch, and, and a lot of that again comes from Christian tradition too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Tertullian was a big defender, you know, of Enoch. Irenaeus had a, had a positive view of Enoch, and it's kind of interesting, really, that you you can go back and and look at you know what Tertullian and others said about Enoch and you know, they more or less come to the conclusion that, look, you know, I'm, I'm getting old now, you know, I've been a defender of this, and I think the book is, is, is great, and, it, you know, I, I defended its canonicity, but I'm willing to believe that the Holy Spirit would speak, you know, through the masses, through, through believers, the, the mass collective of believers as to what we should recognize as canonical, and I guess I was wrong. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll be very humble, you know, and say that, but they assume that the Spirit would guide the church into making, you know, into recognizing which books were canonical and which weren't. So he, he admits that I'm on the losing end of this and I'm okay with that. Mm. Interesting. Because uh, as you pointed out in, in previous discussions, the uh, church, 
and, and commentators on the Bible over the centuries have not always been so forgiving. Forgiving is maybe not the right word. We can't uh, agree on so, anything. So trusting in, in the work of yeah. the Holy Spirit, yeah. Yeah. we need to redefine things in order to protect the texts right. against criticisms that uh, we're backwards, ignorant, you know, unscientific, <laughs> right. you know, uh, really remarkable. Um, well, the book is, is uh, again, the working title, uh, Reversing Herman, mm-hmm. subtitled The Importance of the Sin of the Watchers in the Book of Enoch for New Testament Theology, and that will be the topic of our next discussion. This is fascinating stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, Mike, we appreciate you tackling this subject. Thanks for having um, me. Make sure when you log on to skywatchtv.com, you take advantage of the links to our social media sites. We post a lot of things behind the scenes, little uh, glimpses of things we're working on here, and of course, some of the work that we do in conjunction with the ministry that is near and dear to our hearts, which is Whispering Ponies Ranch. You'll find all of those linked at skywatchtv.com. Look for our Facebook page, give us a like there, discuss the topics that we uh, bring up on Skywatch TV. We appreciate that. Of course, our links there also will point you to our Twitter feed and uh, the new social media sites that our new queen of social media, Christina Peck, <laughs> is handling for us, Instagram and other places. You get more Skywatch TV than you could possibly ever imagine or possibly even want. But we thank you for watching as we keep watch. For Sharon Gilbert, I'm Derek Gilbert, and this is Skywatch TV.
tells us that there were watchers, supernatural beings called the sons of God, who came down on Mount Hermon, intermarried with humans, taught humanity things we should not know. That sin shows up in the New Testament. Welcome to Skywatch TV. I'm Derek Gilbert, alongside my wife, best friend, the host of Skywatch Women, Sharon Gilbert, and the author of a forthcoming book that deals with the sin of the watchers and its importance for New Testament theology. He's the scholar in residence for Logos Bible Software, working title of the book, Reversing Hermon, The Importance of the Sin of the Watchers in the Book of Enoch for New Testament Theology, the subtitle, Dr. Michael Heiser. Mike, welcome back. Thank you. Um, for those of us who were raised in church every Sunday morning, uh, you know, Sunday school, since I can remember all the way through college, at which time I kind of fell away, um, Mount Hermon, Never mentioned. <laughs> Watchers never Gee, mentioned. It was in my church. It, yes. Even, They're even in though, there. Yeah, even though, even though, you know, the Watchers are mentioned in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, never heard that term, never heard any of this stuff. Um, where do we find the sin of the Watchers? And, and maybe as a, a review, what is the sin of the Watchers? And then how does that affect and influence New Testament theology? Sure. Yeah, the, the sin of the Watchers, again, the, the sort of the quick version of it is, not only the transgression, you know, transgressing heaven and earth, this boundary, that the first estate, you know, to use Peter and Jude language, that's what people typically think of, but it's, it's actually more than that. It's part of that, you know, era that's presented in, in this book involved the Watchers teaching people, you know, for lack of a better term, forbidden arts, forbidden knowledge, things that, that corrupted humanity, warfare, okay, arts of seduction, you know, just things like this. And so, in, in, in the Jewish mind, again, in the intertestamental period, which is where we get the book we know as Enoch and other books that are Enochian, as scholars like to refer to them, this notion of what the Watchers did in terms of their teaching, their corruption, is what becomes the central focus for the proliferation of evil. Remember Genesis 6, 5, okay, right after the, you know, the whole Sons of God episode, right. that it describes just the all-encompassing wickedness okay, of, of humanity. Well, you ask, well, how did they be, get, get that wicked? Because you kind of go from the Genesis 6 stuff and the, you know, the sons of God, the Nephilim and all that, and then you get to this statement about wickedness. Again, that question is answered in both the New Testament and, of course, in the intertestamental period. Because if you asked a Jew, again, to, to explain his hamartiology, okay, his doctrine of sin, you know, why is the world the way it is and why, why, why do we have depravity? Their answer is not just X or Genesis 3, the fall, which is what our reflexive mm -hmm. response would be. Their answer is, well, the watchers, Genesis 6. Okay, what they taught people corrupted them, and, and it just spread like wildfire, or wildfire through humanity. And so that is the thing that in the Jewish mind, that's the human problem. We are doomed you know, to an eternity without God because we, we, we won't be resurrected unless, again, we're redeemed. Okay, because of what happens in Genesis 3, you know, we're sort of owned by the Lord of the dead, you know, the Satan figure and all this kind of stuff. It's very familiar in Christian theology. But not only that, 
not only does that need to be dealt with and reversed, but depravity needs to be dealt with and reversed. And so for the, for the Jew, when they thought about Messiah, when they thought about what the Messiah was supposed to do, it wasn't just resurrection, cure my, cure my death problem. It was cure my depravity problem, fix the world. Okay, while you're at it, <laughs> while you're rising, rising from the dead, why don't you fix the world too? And so this, they had the whole complex of ideas in view, and it's because of the Watcher incident. Hmm. So this is more than just a complicating the, the matter from the fall, mm -hmm. from Genesis 3. Uh, it, it, we, we've begun to sin humanity mm -hmm. because of the... Uh, Adam and Eve were lured into the, the lie of the, right. the, the Nakash, into they believing were certainly they could be capable, as gods. Right. They were capable of sinning, because they do, again, in the biblical story, but they become better at it. They become more inclined to it. They, they, they discover new ways, you know, to, to serve themselves, mm -hmm. okay, hmm. because of, of, you know, what the more watchers do. More secret knowledge stuff. Yeah. So, so, again, this is part of, again, the, the Jewish view of, of why the world is the way it is. Now, I'll, I'll give you a few hints, you know, without, you know, too many spoilers here for the book. No, but, we want spoilers. <laughs> well, what I'm going to say, and what I write in the book, I, and I tell people in the book, look, a lot of this is going to be really unfamiliar to you. For, for the academic, again, for the biblical scholar, scholars write about this stuff all the time. I mean, there, there are just mounds and mounds and mounds of journal articles. You know, scholars typically just write for themselves about Enoch and Enochian story and the sin of the watchers in the New Testament. This is, this is a, a kind of a snoozer. Okay? It's, it's old stuff. But nobody's ever collected it and put it into a book form and tried to make it decipherable again to the normal person, you know, the person who's just interested in Bible study. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you get the birth of the Messiah. Now, this ties in again with, if, if you actually take Revelation 12, okay, as the, an example of the ancient genre of astral prophecy, that what John sees in the sky, he actually means when he says, I see these things in the sky, you know, and they portend the birth of the Messiah. Again, you, and people beside me have done this. They've plotted this out in astronomy programs, and it produces a date, you know, for the birth of, of the Messiah, September, you know, 11th, 3 B.C. Which is that. creepy in and of yes, itself, September 11th, itself, yeah. Right. But that correlates with Tishri 1. Okay? Mm -hmm. It was the same day in the Jewish calendar. Tishri 1 is the inauguration of the Jewish king, you know, in, in Israelite times and all this uh -huh. stuff. But there's like more, the same as Rosh Hashanah? Yes. There, there, there's more to it than that because... In Jewish tradition, and again, the book deals with why Jews thought this, and it's based on flood chronology. There we are back now to the Genesis 6, 7, 8. Mm -hmm. In their view, Noah was also born on Tishri 1. And so the Messiah uh, and Noah would have shared yes. a birthday. And, and Noah is the key figure because he survives the flood, and he survives the flood. And what, what event corresponds to that? The destruction of the giants and the, the punishment of the watchers. And so the Jews were expecting the Messiah they looked at Noah as being a type of the Messiah for this reason. Mm -hmm. And so the birth of the Messiah, again, was viewed as this event that will fix the problem, not just the Genesis 3 problem, but the Genesis 6 problem. And there are other astronomical things that associate it with the Pleiades and the constellation Orion, who's the giant. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are Dead Sea Scroll references to you know, the Nafilah, the giant Orion, that are connect back to this. Again, the book deals with this kind of thing, getting you into the, the Jewish mindset. The genealogy of Jesus is another one. Why are, there, why are these particular four women in the genealogy? You know, the, the, the pat answer is, oh, they must be all Gentiles, and that's there to show us that God likes Gentiles too. Well, you know, like the rest of your Old Testament says that too, so that's not really profound. Mm -hmm. 
but again, based on work that nobody else is going to have read because it's it's a dissertation you know, of a few years ago, uh, dissertation by someone named Amy Richter uh, at Marquette went through the genealogies and made this this case, and she makes a really compelling case, and I use this for the book in one chapter, that all four of these women. If you go back again in the primary text and look at, again, the original Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic words, the circumstances of their life, what happens to them or, or how they respond to what happens to them, borrows vocabulary from Genesis 6, 1 through 4 hmm. and the Enochian story of the Watchers. Are you talking about Ruth and Rahab? Yeah, and Tamar and Bathsheba yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and her thesis is that a lot of these episodes, again, revolve around illicit sexual relationships or, again, some point of, you know, heaven and earth kind of transgression like Tamar, the, the Kedeshah, the, you know, mm -hmm. the cult prostitute, you know, right. heaven and earth relationship there. But they're, they're, the references are kind of cryptic unless you're an Israelite, okay, or unless you're a first century Jew. You can kind of pick up on these, these little breadcrumbs that are laid in the text. We miss them all in English. But her, her thesis is that these women were chosen specifically because the one produced by this genealogy, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one who will reverse all these things. He hmm. will take care of the sin problem and reverse, again, the proliferation of evil in the culture. Oh, that's wonderful. So hmm. it, you, you have a lot of, again, cryptic stuff that, you know, scholars talk about this stuff all the time. When, this, is kind, this book's kind of going to be kind of like Unseen Realm, where what I tried to do in the Unseen Realm is to take material that scholars talk about, you know, just you know, on, a, on a regular basis that never really filters down into the church. And to take that material and, again, make it decipherable so that people can see, okay, well, this is why Peter and, and Jude would, would even be thinking about Enoch or even bother to read the story, because elements of it just, you know, are, are breadcrumbed through the text in various ways because it, it's part of their worldview, and the, and the Messiah needs to deal with this problem. Hmm. Galatians 3.19, the law was added because of transgressions. Everyone assumes those transgressions are, are Adam and Eve. Right, they back the garden. Right. Yeah. Again, another you know paper I, I went to hear at an academic conference, and I, I got the paper afterwards because I was so impressed by it. But a guy you know went through second all the Second Temple Jewish literature and asked this question: Could it be that the law, the idea of the law being added to transgressions, that the transgressions that we're talking about there are the transgressions of the Watchers? Did any Jews ever think that? about hmm. the law? And hmm. the answer is, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. Hmm. And so he, he, he takes you through all the material. And I'm going to condense it for the, the sake of the, the chapter of the book. But his, his thesis was, okay, now if we read Galatians 3 and 4, there's some historic academic problems about what Paul says about the law in this chapter. If we view it through this lens, does it make any better sense? Okay. Hmm. <laughs> but again, why was the law added? To, to halt the proliferation of evil. And it's not just a Jewish thing. It, it's, you know, for the nations and all this kind of stuff. So th these are just examples of, of mm -hmm. chapters. There are 12 or 13 chapters in the book. It, the Watcher, Sin of the Watchers relates to baptism, how cr early Christians used to practice baptism with denunciations of the devil and his angels. And then there's a reason for that. Kind of an exorcistic. Yeah, yeah. there's a reason uh, why you uh, would connect baptism. Mm -hmm. in, in 1 Peter 3, why does Peter connect Noah, the flood, baptism, the spirits that are in prison, i.e. the Watchers? Why does he connect all these ideas? Yeah. Well, there are answers for that because he has Enoch in his head. 
and he has the sin of the watchers in his head. And baptism makes a statement about that because it unites you to Christ, mm -hmm. who's the Messiah, who's going to reverse all this garbage. So there's a lot of things going on like that in the New Testament mm. that we just we never really think about that the writer was trying to communicate to us. But the, the, you know, the reality is the Bible might have been written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So we are outsiders. We are cultural outsiders to a lot of what the writer's dropping in there that he assumes his immediate audience will just you know, click mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. But we're 2,000 years removed from that. It does, it's not clicking with us because we're so far removed from the original context. We don't read things like, like the Book of Enoch. We don't mm -hmm. have that in our head. We'll never see it unless somebody sort of says, you know, read the book and then look at this, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do. When Paul was writing with this context in mind, with the idea that the watchers, that whole, that Jesus Christ the Messiah would and did re reverse it and eventually will mm -hmm. judge all of the angels. It's the already but not yet. The judgment has begun yet. and is proceeding as planned. When he writes about women keeping their heads covered, do you think oh, yeah. he, do you think, because the watchers, because yeah, the yeah, angels watch, because of the angels, do you think yeah. that he thought that that sin was still a, at risk, that yeah. the watchers still might come in Yeah, and I, do I that? may have to put a disclaimer on that chapter. <laughs> for, for those people who, who might be watching this and, and have heard my uh, episode on this on the Naked Bible podcast, room, yeah, yeah. have the children leave the room. Uh, the, the language in 1 Corinthians 11 about the head covering uh, comes out of Greco-Roman medical texts, uh, believe it or not. And it's very sexual in nature. Now, you know, the, the broad point is, is modesty, and you can kind of tell that, you know, just reading it mm -hmm. even in English. But because of the terminology that's used and the strong sexual component of the head covering itself. It's more than a scarf. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the hair and the whole bit. I mean, basically, they, they thought that the length of a woman's hair had something to do with fertility and fecundity. Mm. Again, this is just oh. Greco, yeah, it's Greco-Roman Gentile science. He's writing to Gentiles, you know, so that he's he's connecting with them. But you know, not, in addition to the modesty point, he's concerned that they be sexually faithful to their husbands and their wives, and 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 again, just modest in in what they do with their hair or not, and all that sort of thing. And he adds, because of the angels. So in Paul's mind, it's not a statement that what happened in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 recurred, but it, it, evidently in Paul's mind, that was a possibility that he wanted to just cut off, you know, at, right, right there. We, mm -hmm. we don't want this kind of thing to happen again because of, of what resulted from it. We're still living with the results of this. So you can just tell this is part of Paul's consciousness. He's, he's concerned about this possibility when he throws that in, in that chapter. Hmm. Well, the working title of Dr. Heiser's book, Reversing Herman, discusses the influence of the story recorded in the book of Enoch, the, the sin of the watchers, and its influence on uh, New Testament theology. Talk more about intertestamental period literature and how much influence it has on the writers of the uh, Gospels, and also what it means to reverse the sin of the watchers when Skywatch TV continues right after this. Welcome back to Skywatch.
this morning, they said, Bibi, we're nervous. This is a big church. <laughs> so, so um, one of the songs, as, as some of you know, I have older brothers and, 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 and my brothers and my family um, started singing and recording years ago. And one of their first songs that they sung went something like this, says, so the question is, will I ever leave you? The answer is,
Jesus in the house. He will fix it. Hallelujah. And, 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 and what a joy, what a joy to learn how much they love Jesus in Seoul, Korea. And so that song that I came and, and tested on y'all a couple of years ago, we decided to record together, and it's on, on the charts, and we're doing And I asked the, the singers, Kim, y'all come on and join us on this one. You know it, you probably know it. Go something like this. Ha, ha, ha. Said a ha, 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 ha. Hey. Ha, 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 ha. Just like a medicine. And I understand why when life gets hard, you start to cry. Oh, yes, we will. And if the will will bring you and I to something
Watch TV. I'm Derek Gilbert, alongside Sharon Gilbert and Dr. Michael Heiser. We discuss the forthcoming book, tentatively titled Reversing Herman. Uh, please log on to skywatchtv.com. We have content there exclusive to the website. Our web-only content includes interviews that we couldn't fit into the network television schedule and uh, programs exclusively for our viewers online. The Skywatch TV channel on Roku and YouTube, such as Skywatch Women, hosted mm -hmm. by Sharon Gilbert. Our weekly look at science, Sci Friday, and uh, Josh Peck as he uh, deconstructs the universe one particle at a time into the multiverse. Josh Peck co-hosted with his wife, Christina Peck. That and more, our daily news updates as well, all at skywatchtv.com. Um, Mike, what does it mean to reverse the sin of the Watchers? Yeah, it, it means redemption. It means reclaiming you know, what Eden was originally supposed to be, what, what life on earth for humans was supposed to be. In communion with God, again, just think of the original idea, the original enterprise of Eden, if you will, that God comes to humanity, wants to live with humanity, live with his human family, uh, and of course have his divine family, you know, a blended family, all that one. Heaven meets earth. This is what Eden is. It gets marred and ruined, again, by the events of Genesis 3. And then you have, again, other divine beings who also rebel and want to, again, come down to earth. And the Enochian literature has a variety of motives for this, depending on which text you read. But they come down to earth, and the result of what they do is to further destroy, further undermine God's you know, plan to bring humanity back into a relationship with him. So they, their humanity is essentially propelled away from a relationship with God. Again, seeking their own pleasure, seeking to, you know, to, to kill off each other, and, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So reversing it is not just, again, oh, God looks at you and you're righteous now because you've accepted the Messiah and, and that, not, and, you know, that you know, whole complex of ideas. But it's also that we need this taken care of. We need you to have a renewed nature. The Spirit of God needs to reside in you. To progressively, again, here's the imaging language that you get in Genesis 1, Okay, but now you are to be made like the image of his son, who is the perfect image, okay, the, the perfect manifestation of, of the kind of imaging that God wanted for all people. And, of course, you know, you work toward glorification, you know, doing that, going back to the global Eden. But the, the linchpin for all of it is the Messiah. And so he becomes the central figure in this, in this sort of stopgap, stopping point thing that we have to reinstall, again, the kingdom of God back on earth. And if we leave it up to people, okay, like the Israelites, like David, like Saul, it's just going to fail. And people don't realize this. You know, a lot of Christians, I even get asked by Christians, you know, why, did, why did the Messiah have to be God as man? You know, why, did, why do we have to have the incarnation? It's because the covenants were made with people. And people fail, mm -hmm. always. Okay? Mm -hmm. But God can't cheat, you can't look at the situation and say, well, that was a bad idea to make covenants with people. Because then it's like, well, God, shouldn't you have known that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, it, it, you can't just say, well, you know, let's just forget that. Let's just call it good and you know, let's do something else. You can't do that. So the solution is, since the covenants were made with people, and God is the only one who can keep his own covenants, he says, I have to become a man. I will become a man, fulfill my own covenants, and die in their place. So the incarnation is really, really important for reasons that you, you wouldn't normally suspect. But it's tied to the failure of humanity, even of the Davidic line.
Mm. But since he makes the covenant with David, I not only have to become a man, I got to be of the line of David. I got, you know, I got to fulfill all these things. Mm. And this becomes again the, the stopgap measure. The kingdom of God is never going to get kickstarted again unless God does it. And God comes as a man and does it. And this is why we have the inauguration, the kingdom language early. Even before the crucifixion, you start to get kingdom language. Uh, the kingdom of God is here. It's present. It's going to start. You know, he dies, rises again. He ascends the spirit. The spirit, you know, who is the Lord? He is, is but isn't Jesus. You know, all mm -hmm. that kind of talk in the New Testament. And from that point on, it's a progressive rolling back. It's a progressive recovering, okay, reversing of depravity, of, of all this bad stuff, Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 combined, hmm. that has happened. And even Genesis 11 with Babel, bringing the nations back into the fold. The Messiah is, is the key point person to do all of those things, all three of them, not just, again, like Christians typically think. It's just about the fall and the resurrection. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's crucial. You can't have any of it without it. But there's actually more going on here. The New Testament writers have more in their head than just this one passage. They have some of these other things, too. Is this why the Lord chose Mount Hermon for the transfiguration? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a real slap in the face. <laughs> I, I, I do, you know, I discussed this in Unseen Realm, too, so this, this one may be familiar, again, to some readers, mm -hmm. but Jesus goes into the territory of Bashan, okay, which, again, is associated with the giants in, in the Old Testament. That's where the conquest actually begins. Mm -hmm. The conquest begins and ends with... Mm -hmm. with the defeat of the giants. People don't often realize that, but it's Bashan with Sion and Og early, and then Joshua defines victory in Joshua 11. Is there no more Adam Keem in the land? You know, hooray, you know, we win. So it, it's just a start-to-finish kind of thing, but Jesus goes into the same places that have all this baggage, this, this backstory yeah. to them. And you know, he, this is where we have in Bashan, we have the, you know, thou art Peter and upon this rock passage, and, and, and the rock, of course, is, is right there at the foot of Bashan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the cult of Dan, cult of Baal in the Old Testament, Mount Hermon is right there. The Grotto of Pan. Right, yes. Grotto. It, it, I mean, this is, this is spiritual warfare kind of at its best here. You know? So you, you go and you, and you, you essentially say, you, you poke Satan in the eye because he's the big Baal figure. Canaanite, Baalzebul, mm -hmm. Baalzebul in, in mm -hmm. the Gospels. Yeah. Same, Baal same the guy. prince, right. Yes. So he, he does that, and then they, they turn, and six days later they go up into the mountain. Well, there's only one mountain there, and it's Hermon, and, and that's where the transfiguration happens. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm here. You know, <laughs> like, do something about it. And, and my view is that Jesus does these things to pick a fight. Hmm. Because he knows, you know, right after he does this, he, he, the Gospels say that from this point on, he began to teach his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and die. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what? <laughs> like this was so much fun, you know, picking on Satan, and then we get to pick on the watchers, casting out demons. Right? Yeah. Oh, this, is, this is awesome. You know, what are you talking about dying for? You know, but but he picks the fight because he knows that's what needs to happen. And the forces of darkness don't. I mean, they know who he is. They know what the end game is. Well, you know, God wouldn't have sent his son unless he wanted to do this kingdom of God thing. You know, mm -hmm. and, and when you look at the Revelation twelve uh, incident that you mentioned earlier, it, yeah. th there was that fight in mm -hmm. heaven, yep. which. I mean, we can speculate because we don't know for sure, but uh, perhaps that was about let's let's see if we can stop this from happening. Yeah. Stop it! Stop it from happening. We don't want this kingdom of God talk anymore. And it, of course, he shows up. Mm -hmm. They know who he is, and I think Satan's offer is a genuine one. In other words, oh, I know why you're here. It's this kingdom of God business and reclaiming the nations and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, look, I can give you all that. I got let's the keys. Shortcut the I process. Can, great, I can I can deliver that for you if you'll just bow down and worship me. You know, it, again, it's just all this 
the stuff that's under the surface, you mm -hmm. know, going on, uh, that if you're familiar with your Old Testament and you haven't stripped the supernatural out of it, that, that helps. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see, again, what, what the conversation is really about. And so, you know, he, he does this to pick the fight. And, and sure enough, a week later, triumphal entry, everybody's cheering, and a week after that, he's dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what needs to happen. You know, and to quote, he, you know, on the cross, Psalm 22, bulls of Bashan surround me. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus isn't talking about being surrounded by cattle. Okay, the, the bull was a, was a Baal symbol in Bashan, and so this is a demonic reference. Can you miss a lot of these things if you don't, you know, have the ancient writer in your head? Mm -hmm. What's funny is I, I, and I mentioned this over dinner last night, I recently read an academic paper called the Baals of Bashan, <laughs> in which a, a scholar went and made the case that Jesus couldn't have been referring to cattle on the cross or just poking fun at uh, uh, wealthy the people, women, yeah, wealthy the women, women yeah, the cows of Bashan. And he, instead of looking at the, the theological argument, he actually went back and examined soil samples and archaeological <laughs> digs for pollen samples to prove that there were no cattle in Bashan because right. it was a lousy place for grazing. But the point was the same. Yeah. It was a theological point that Jesus was making. He was talking about the principalities and powers that uh, Paul wrote about who were the ones that were surrounding him on the cross. Yep. But then, the, now was it uh, was it 1 Corinthians 6-2 where uh, Paul makes the further case that uh, they would not have crucified him if they really understood was, what they knew? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. 2, 6, yeah. I got it reversed. Yeah. Had they known, they would never would have crucified the Lord of glory, had the rulers of this world known. Yeah. And, and again, it, it, I, I take Paul for what he says there because, again, it, it's not enough to know who he is. You know, the demons say, you're the son of the Most High. And by the way, it's kind of curious. They're the only ones who call him that. Because mm -hmm. uh -huh. you know, the they know exactly who this is. And again, they know what the end game is. They know what the purpose is. But they don't know the mechanism. And, and they draw a logical conclusion. Well, you know, we tried to stop him and he's here. And, you know, well, let's just like, let's kill him. You know, problem solved. And, and of course, <laughs> that is not the problem solved. <laughs> That's exactly what we want you to do. Yes. Yeah. And again, it's this cat and mouse game that you know operates again under the surface. And Jesus, when he when he knows it's time to die, it's like, okay, we go to Bashan now, and we pick a fight, and then we go to Herman and we pick another one, and the Son of Man needs to die. Hmm. It's fascinating. The spiritual war, as recorded in the Bible, is far richer and more complex, more immediate and real than we ever imagined. The forthcoming book, Reversing Herman, Dr. Michael Heiser, the author. Mike, we'll continue the conversation. For Sharon Gilbert, I'm Derek Gilbert, and we thank you for watching as we keep watch.
I know this is thug life, baby. 
Staying healthy isn't easy.